Located in the heart of vibrant and historic Boston, Boston University School of Law offers enormous breadth to its students. And today we're speaking with its Dean of Admissions. Plug in your earbuds. Welcome to Admission Straight Talk, the podcast dedicated to graduate admissions and helping you approach the application process thoughtfully and successfully. Your host is Accepted's founder and world-renowned admissions guru, Linda Abraham. At Accepted, our mission is to get you to that unforgettable moment when you read your acceptance email and shout, yes, I'm in, confident you'll be attending the perfect program to help you launch the career of your dreams. Thanks for joining me for the 539th episode of Admission Straight Talk. Are you applying to law school this cycle? Or are you planning to apply to law school next year or later? Are you competitive at your target programs? Accepted's Law School Admissions Quiz can give you a quick reality check. Just go to accepted.com slash law dash quiz, complete the quiz, and you not only get an assessment, but tips on how to improve your chances of acceptance. Plus, it's all free. Again, take this short quiz at accepted.com slash law dash quiz to obtain your free assessment. Now, for today's interview... I'm delighted to have on Admission Straight Talk, Alyssa Leonard, Senior Assistant Dean for Admissions, Financial Aid, and Enrollment at Boston University School of Law. Dean Leonard attended Oberlin College and earned her AB in History. She has been in admissions at BU Law since 2008 and brings 15 years of experience to our conversation today. Dean Leonard, welcome to Admission Straight Talk. Thanks very much for having me. My pleasure. Can you give an overview of the more distinctive elements of the BU Law JD program? Sure, I'd be happy to. And you'll have to stop me when I run on too long. Because okay. I love this question. So uh, we're in the center heart of Boston, obviously. If I look out my window, I've closed my shades, but you would see the Charles River with oh, wow. boats on it. On this sunny day, you would see the State House from my office. Boston's obviously a major legal market. It's the hottest biotech city in the country. Uh, the First Circuit sits here. We're big on tech and innovation. And of course, it's a very youthful city because of all the schools and colleges here. On top of being in the middle of Boston, we're part of a large research institution of 36,000 students. It has remarkable benefits, uh, concrete, as in opportunities for dual degrees or for students to just take up to 12 hours of graduate level coursework anywhere at BU towards their degrees, but also sort of lifestyle enhancements like an outstanding gym and that sort of thing. Within the law school, we have a deep and broad curriculum. We have an outstanding portfolio of experiential opportunities that maybe we'll talk about. We guarantee a clinical opportunity to any student who wants one. We have a broad range of study abroad programs. We have just expertise of faculty renowned not only for their legal research, but for their talent in the classroom. So I think we feel very strongly about uh, a student's ability to find their path, even change their path during the three years. And we might want to talk about that or all sorts of avenues toward their eventual practice. We also offer students a community of support, by which I mean students are assigned a faculty mentor, career development advisor, an upper level student, and an alumni mentor if they would like one upon entry to the law school. So I think this gives students an extraordinary opportunity of sort of designated people from whom they may seek advice and counsel as they proceed into the building of their professional careers. Really sounds like very robust support. Yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Now, when I was preparing for the call, I was really struck by the breadth of the law school, and you've, you've touched upon it in your response to my last question. Can you go into a, a little bit more depth 
I noticed that BULAS is, for example, a special program in transactional law, as well as study abroad programs and a concentration in international law. There's there's a lot more, but those two programs caught my eye. So. Sure. So I think I'll start with the transactional practice program, uh, which I'd say is the premier such program in the country. Uh, it started here about 12 years ago. It is not a secret that most lawyers do transactional law, not litigation, but law schools traditionally didn't train students. The, the training was often training they got in firms, right, in transactional work. And so here we have an outstanding program taught in large part by uh, senior practicing attorneys in the community that is a hands-on program with a very low student faculty ratio. For instance, uh, if you do the transactional program uh, concentration, which you don't need to do to take advantage of the courses, a required course and sort of the first course in that series is contract drafting, right? And every lawyer is going to encounter contracts, whether right. they are doing transactional work or litigation. But the, this is a class, I think we are up to 11 sections last year. Wow. And nice. each class has just 12 students because it's a very hands-on class, right? So learning the ins and outs of a contract, doing the drafting, doing the redrafting, doing some negotiation. And, and those have been really fulfilling classes. I know that we get a lot of feedback from students once they're in firms or other um, practice settings about how, you know, somebody handed them a contract and they knew how to read it, right? Yeah, yeah, so it's, yeah. It's, Prove to be a big advantage to our students. And then there are a series of courses from which you can choose if you want to do the concentration, like mergers and acquisitions or international tax, wide variety. But in each case, you would end with a simulation course, which is a semester long course, not with live clients, but it's a simulation course of a deal. Oh, all right. Um, and students walk through the deal, whether it's a you know, pharmaceutical company and a drug maker or a business or an international uh, acquisition. These are remarkable experiences for our students to leave law school with. So um, sounds remarkable. been a big commitment over the last decade, I would say, to the law school keeping its pulse on the practice to be sure that our students are practice ready. And so the transactional law program is part of that effort. Um, and are there also clinics that they can participate in? In terms of, let's, let's say, as obviously they under the supervision of lawyers or the professors, but where they can, you know, work with yes, people, some small business people or whatever. There's some transactional work, I believe, in our two clinics, uh, which are intellectual property clinics with MIT. Oh, so wow. we're the only uh, law school with clinics with MIT. One is the startup law clinic and one is the technology law clinic. Those are both year-long clinics with live clients supervised by full-time faculty. Most of our clinics are serving clients who couldn't afford representation, right? Yeah, in the law clinic or the civil litigation program. And some are policy clinics. So we have a legislative policy clinic. That's one of the only ones I believe in the country. Uh, you know, I can see the state house. So students have the opportunity to work on legislation. And we also have an international human rights clinic that's largely a policy clinic. Otherwise, we're focused on live client clinics. And uh, as I mentioned, guarantee students the opportunity to take a clinic. Got it. And the other quite program I asked about was the international law clinic, which is right. transactional laws is kind of the, the bread and butter of, of lawyers, right? 
I mean, like you say, most lawyers drop contracts. That's what they're yep. that's what they're yep. there for. Yeah. National law is kind of the other end in that it's it's probably a very narrow slice of law, of the practice of law. Do you want to touch on that? Right. For just a so there's public international law and private international law, and we have scholars teaching in both those areas. Uh, we also have a concentration that consists of course courses. We have an international law journal, and we can talk about what law school journals are. If, if that's sure, that's a great question. That, that's right? a great question. Go for it. Um, so rather bizarrely, in the field of legal academics, most law professors are writing scholarship that is uh, with the goal of having it published, which is what all academics do. But in the field of law, those pieces of scholarship are published by student edited journals at law schools, right? Mm -hmm. So the most uh, prestigious journal is typically the Law Review. And if you remember in uh, Legally Blonde, Elle Woods is trying to get onto Law Review, right? That is um, historically a gem, an achievement that you would put on your resume, right? Mm -hmm. That would be of interest to employers. So we have six journals here. And that's some that's extracurricular, right? In some cases, students may receive some credit, but it's something that you would do in your second and third year. You would compete to be on a journal at the end of your first year. Here at BU Law, you would rank your preference of journals. And these are student-run organizations. They have editorial boards. They receive submissions from faculty across the country. They read them, and then they work with the chosen uh, authors to edit and publish them. All the while, many of them are writing what we would consider lengthy and very narrow papers, legal papers, right? Called notes is the okay. term of art. And some number of student notes will also be published by the journals. So that's um, how much of legal scholarship goes. It's a great opportunity for students. Um, we have six journals. We have a law review. We also have a journal of international law. Uh, technology and the law. So we have we have a bunch of them. So the students who like to write and research, that's a that's a great place for them. I'm not sure how we got there, but I could go back to study abroad if you want. Yeah, sure. Okay. So we have a very large portfolio of study abroad opportunities, 15 single semester programs in 11 countries. Ooh. Those are single semester programs. Most are taught in English, not all of them. Some are in the language of that country. These are programs in Europe, Asia, and South America. And we also have six JD LLM programs. An LLM is a, a further advanced degree in the law. And so in these programs, in the three years that you would typically take to earn your JD, you can earn both a JD and an LLM, say, in international arbitration at Paris too. Wow. You have to speak French, right? These are not programs that many people do, but for the right student, they are amazing opportunities. And many of our students consider them life-changing and transformative. If nothing else, you're exposed to another culture and another way of thinking about the law and, and a different legal system. I think you would choose them not maybe as you would choose a study abroad program as an undergrad. Like, I want to go to Australia. That's not how you would choose it. Yeah. There are different areas of specialty at these law schools, although they're not entirely law schools. One's a graduate school, one's a business school, where you would match your substantive area of interest in the law with the the strength at the other institution. So this is a great opportunity for our students. Um, people can read more about these experiences on our website. Right. And it's just another way that we offer opportunity. So there are a lot of choices to make during your three years of how to spend your time, right? 
again, I was really struck by the breadth of the program. So that's yeah. kind of why I wanted to ask about those. But let's yeah. turn to admissions now. That's obviously sure. your area. I know that BU Law accepts the LSAT and the GRE. Approximately what percentage of the applicant pool has applied with the GRE, let's say last year? About two and a bit percent. Oh, so still very tiny. A very small slice. Very small. Right. Yeah. Are you even able to say with that small percentage if the GRE is equally predictive of success in law school? Not really. I cannot because we've only been taking it for a few years. One year mm -hmm. we didn't even have any matriculants with the GRE. And of course, now we're faced with the GRE having a new version. Right. Um, so things have gotten even more complicated. That's true. Um, so I don't know. I, I think uh, for students who haven't taken a test yet, in other words, they haven't done a first degree that required a GRE and they're just trying to be efficient and move along, I think it makes more sense to take the LSAT. And, you know, there are interesting things about it. For instance, the GRE scores writing. And you would be surprised, or I have been surprised, by some of the quite low scores on the writing section of the GRE. Yeah, and that would be a red flag in law school. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. For sure. For sure. Yeah. It's now August. I think by the time this this interview airs, it'll be September, which is still on the early side in the law school application cycle. What is the best time to apply, in your opinion? I love this question. So I started in this business in the 90s and then took a break for a while. And I actually think the answer changes every cycle. And okay. oh, that I had a crystal ball because I don't know how the cycle is going to go, right? right. So sometimes I hear people saying early, 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 maybe, right? I think it's clear that late is bad or rather than bad, perhaps I would say you are disadvantaged if you apply in March or April. Maybe you can also define what is early and late. Sure. I've always thought of early as Thanksgiving. If you okay. apply before Thanksgiving for BU law, it's early. If we're not talking about binding decision programs, which we could, we have, a, we have many different deadlines. We could talk about that. But generally, I would say by Thanksgiving is early. I'm not sending out decisions in September and October because one of the things I want to know before I start sending out decisions is what is the applicant pool going to look like this year? And there's no way to know in September and October, right. right? And also we're recruiting in September and October and we're typically getting systems up and running. And for a lot of reasons, there isn't a reason to rush. After November, I think it gets harder to be definitive about whether in a particular year someone's outcome would have been wildly different or it doesn't have to be wildly different. It could just be different and the student could could be disappointed, right? Right. Now, I recognize that. And I think, you know, we had a crazy cycle a couple of years ago. That cycle, it made sense. We didn't know it at the time, but applying early was a huge advantage. That has sure. not been consistently true. So I think there's never a downside to applying on the earlier side if you're prepared, if you're happy with your materials, you've been thorough, you've taken the test. But someone shouldn't be discouraged by applying later in the cycle because the way I think of it, what's the worst thing that could happen, right? If they've applied at the end and have been waitlisted as a result, they're a competitive applicant, they may still be admitted. And if not, law school's not going anywhere. So worst case scenario, they could work or go to school for another year and then reapply the next cycle, right? Is there a disadvantage to applying as a reapplicant? 
not at BU law, not in any way. Okay. Unless the person was admitted the prior cycle and did not come. Right. I actually have a question on the application um, that asks if you applied the prior cycle and then it says, if you were admitted, please explain why you didn't choose to attend. Is that specifically at BU law? What was it a different law school? Do you no, still want to answer? Yeah. Just be okay. I figure, okay, I admitted you once. Yeah. You didn't come. Why are you applying again? Makes sense. No, makes I, sense. I get really, yeah. I'm cautious with those applications. Actually, I think it's it's rather generous of you that you asked the question because a lot of schools will say, you know, we admitted you last time, you didn't come. Forget it. Sure. <laughs> so sure. um I think that's a that's a good that's a, that's a, a nice thing, if you will, a generous thing. What are your top tips for the personal statement at BU Law? So we have a prompt. So my top tip is follow the prompt. Okay. And you would be surprised at how many people don't and readers get very frustrated. So um, some schools don't have personal statement prompts. Some schools have very general ones. Ours is essentially, why do you want to go to law school? We're asking the question because we'd like to hear the answer. And if you don't answer the question, you know, sometimes we can be left and a reader will say, I don't know why this person wants to go to law school. Right? right. And so your application is the opportunity to make the case for your admission. Right. You have right. all the different parts um, which together should come together in your favor. And the personal statement is where we hear your voice. So if we're saying to you, please tell us this information, you you ought to to answer the question. Excellent please, advice. You know, some other things. I'm a little old school, so sometimes we'll see somebody conclude that's why they want to attend law school X. Well, I'm not law school X, I'm BU law. And so occasionally, because I do think we're in higher education, I do think there could be a learning component here. We will send an email to the applicant and say, would you like to review your personal statement? And, you know, I got a few back last cycle who said, no, thanks. I already proofread it. Oh gosh. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Okay. Lawyers must read closely, must proofread, right? We need people. People are going to be representing people or, or companies' interests here. Yeah. This, this is not a joke. It, yeah. It's a learning opportunity, but it's also, you know, so um, you certainly want to proofread carefully. And a more recent trend I've seen, I don't know, it's hard to talk about, but I've seen a tremendously personal information in personal statements. And yeah. it's both hard to read because we're human beings. So it's it's hard to absorb. We can't do anything about it. Like if somebody's reporting a crime, right? That they haven't reported to anyone else. I, I don't care to be the bearer of that information. And it often in those essays, for whatever reason, strays from the professional presentation of why the person wants to go to law school. So in other words, mentioning these difficult circumstances, and many of us unfortunately have had them, could be 100% appropriate in a personal statement, right? That's the reason you want to go to law school, because you've seen the inadequacy of the criminal justice system. That's very different than an extensive personal statement that details. I've had trigger warnings in personal statements. So if you find yourself writing a trigger warning, I would suggest that you think about this in a professional context, right? Your application may be shared with a bar, right? It's going to be housed in a law school. 
So you, you want to be professional in all of the presentation of your material. And so there are ways to handle sensitive information without providing a lot of it. Right. I've actually heard, heard that from others. Mm. And I think my guess is that part of the reason for this, this trend, if you will, is that there's this, the schools are looking for resilience. Well, if you're looking for resilience, you have to have overcome something or come back for something. And uh, the degree of, of pain that you experienced is also an evidence of, of resilience. Right. I'm not and defending it. I'm not defending no, no. it. I think it's, you're right. And I think it's worth writing about also. I but there is a way to write about it. Writing about it at right. all. Right. It's the way it's written about. And yeah. I think, I think the other thing is that for applicants to remember, this is something that I've advocated for years is you want to show that you're stronger after whatever it is that you went through than damaged goods. The, I think you're writing. Right. The writing example I've, I've given, if you'll, if you'll bear with me for a minute, is years ago, we had a, a double stroller. I had six kids. Wow. And that yep. thing went through from number two to number six. Okay. But I think when the sixth one was was a baby, or the fifth one was a baby, the metal frame broke. And I already, I knew, I think, I think it was the sixth one. I knew I didn't want to replace it because I wasn't going to have more kids and I had to find a place that would fix it. So I went actually with some boat shop in the Marina. I lived, I lived the time near the beach and they soldered it together. And I said, is the solder going to be a weak point? Is it going to break more, you know, is it going to be prone mm -hmm. to, to breakage? Mm -hmm. And they said, no, the solder is going to be stronger than any mm -hmm. other part. And I said, that's how you have to come out in your personal statement, like that old stroller, which by the way, after the, the number six was three or four or whatever, I no longer use it. I gave it away and somebody was still using it. I had no idea what happened to it after that. But that, that's how you want to come out. If you have you know, some horrible traumatic experience that you're using to show resilience, and most people have had difficulties in their life, hopefully not too horrible. You want to show that you are stronger like that broken piece on my old stroller that was soldered together. That's a beautiful way to illustrate it. Yes. Okay. So let's, let's go on enough, enough from me. I'm here to interview sure. you. What about the optional essay? Is it basically a diversity statement? Um, it's an optional essay. It's based on um, a requirement the ABA put in recently to standard 303 that everyone needs to have fluency in. And I would have to look because I don't want to misquote this. Yeah. Consistent with the American Bar Association, Boston University School of Law believes that knowledge about bias, cross-cultural competency, okay. ability to understand people from different backgrounds and engage with them effectively, and racism are central to the legal profession. Please tell us how your education, training, or lived experience has deepened your knowledge about bias, cross-cultural competency, and racism, and or prepared you to explore these topics at BU Law. That's a new addition to the standard in the ABA standards. The ABA, uh, American Bar Association, mm -hmm. as you know, are creditors of law schools. Mm -hmm. um, and so all law schools now are going to uh, be required to provide, I believe, two opportunities for students to learn around these topics. So this is the question. I will say, and I don't expect this to change. I, I ran some data. We've always had an optional statement and this one will be optional as well. And typically about 44% of students uh, have written that optional essay. 
It's by no means required. And sometimes students find that the content they want to share actually fits in with the personal statement and they prefer to write one. So right. I wouldn't expect that to change much this cycle. When should an applicant write an addendum in your opinion? Sure. I love them actually. So as a reader, I'm trying to construct a narrative, trying to understand who this person is and their trajectory, you know, so far and where they're headed. So if I see an anomaly, I'm looking at a transcript and it's a strong transcript and there's a poor semester, sometimes, well, all the time, I think it's human instinct to try to fill in the reason. So for instance, if I see pre-med classes, freshman year, and the grades aren't strong, and then there's a flip to poli-sci and the grades are strong, that, in a way that tells a story, right? But sometimes you don't know, and sometimes you might make the wrong assumption. If you look at the resume and see someone, for instance, joined a fraternity the semester their grades tanked, you might say, well, that might be why, but maybe that person's, you know, God forbid their grandmother died. Like things happen. And sure. so you lose an opportunity to tell me the truth of what happened. So right. I, I recommend people really look at their whole application closely and think or show it to a friend, like where are questions that aren't answered? And if you can't answer them, you know, somewhere um, obvious, then write an addendum, whether that's about a poor test score, a big gap among between test scores, uh, a, a semester of poor grades. You know, I think we haven't talked about the pandemic yet, but boy, did that, it was terrible, right? Yeah. Like, even saying that, I get a little funny feeling. Like I've seen so much trauma or, you know, and so- It was really hard on kids. It was just hard. Really hard. It was really hard. Schools went remote. People didn't have good living circumstances or they had immunocompromised family members, like whatever it was, it wasn't easy. And so there are resume gaps, for instance. I'm, I'm going back to the addendum. And I think sure. people should own- that's that also, right? And I think it's completely fine to write about that. And none of these need to be long. I'm like three or four sentences is a great length. We're reading a lot. The only ones I don't like are, again, a little too detailed about digestive disorders. That sort of thing is unnecessary. But if you had a bad test administration because you were sick, I don't need to know more than that, right? That That is right. Right. And so I actually find them very helpful and we don't limit the number. Now, if somebody has four or five, you do start to question them, right? right. So you right. want common sense in all parts of your application, but I really think they can be helpful. It's a matter of showing judgment. Yes, absolutely. Judgment, common sense. Uh, yeah. You know. Both things the lawyers need. Yeah. Right, right, right. Professionals need them. Yep. Are there any blemishes on one's record that would be an automatic denial, like a criminal record or academic dishonesty or dismissal from an undergraduate program or something like that? Well, I would never say never. It depends on the severity of the incident. You know, a lot of people drank in college. That's not a secret. A lot of people had incense in their dorm rooms or candles. That's not going to prevent a strong student from admission to law school. Now, years ago, I read an application of somebody who threw a pumpkin out their dorm window and was expelled because you can actually really hurt someone. Hurt somebody, from, sure. Right? So, or someone who set off the fire alarm inside the dorm, you know, the sprinkler system. These are not crimes without victims, potentially. 
So I think there's that distinction. And then there are, of course, convictions. I, I will say that in Massachusetts, we're constrained about what we may ask in character and fitness questions. For instance, we don't ask if someone has been arrested. You'll see different questions in different states. And that's another place where students should be savvy and read the question carefully. But I would say we're reviewing each case as it comes through. And of course, if we're talking about felony convictions, that's a serious matter. I've seen felony convictions for downloading music back in the day, right? That would be very different than reading somebody who's convicted of a violent crime. Right, right. And would distance and time from the incident also be a factor? I think in general, distance and time from a number of things in the application are a factor, whether it's from grades, test scores, or, you know, this right. as well. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Is full-time work experience a nice to have or really important to BU Law? I noticed that 64% of the students had one or more years of postgraduate work experience. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty large number. It is. Typically, a quarter to a third of the class comes straight from undergrad. Those students have as much success as students who have been out doing other things. But there's no question that Life is long, and there are a lot of things to learn that will help you in law school and in the practice. And if you've been working on those things before coming to law school, I think you're that much further ahead. And it doesn't mean it doesn't work for people straight out of school. So I would say nice to have. Right. Okay. Nice to have. That's pretty good. Okay. Yeah. That's clear. Um, and in terms of, of experience, whether it's full-time work experience or internships and as, an, as an undergrad or you know part-time, whatever... Do you like to see experience that is closely related to law, like working in a legal office or a legal clinic or perhaps in politics, policy, or something like that? So we have a lot of students who have been legislative aides or paralegals in a variety of settings. For some students, I think it's important to be proximate to the practice to kind of figure out what it's about and whether they really want to invest three years of tuition and time and make it their career, right? It's serious business. Other people, for whatever reason, maybe they've wanted to be a lawyer since they were a kid, maybe someone they admired was a lawyer, are certain of their path and really want to take the opportunity to be in the Peace Corps, walk the Appalachian Trail, be a carpenter. I mean, we have students from all walks of life, a lot of scientists, you know, I think okay. everybody brings different skills. Um, and so I, I wouldn't say it's something we look for, especially since I think people aren't always given substantive work in some of these settings. Sure. So they may not gain the skills that they could gain in a different setting because, you know, it's, it's easy to Google what skills do lawyers need and sort of do a self-assessment and, and find an opportunity where you can sort of check some of those skills off. If, if you're not comfortable speaking in public, for instance, and you know you're going to be called on during the first year of law school, why not sort of get that taken care of before you start law school? And right. you might or might not be able to do that in a law firm, right, or a legal setting. You, you might be better off knocking on doors for Nyberg or something. So I think there are a lot of different ways to approach it, in other words, and so it's not something we look for. Got it. Thank you. What factors do you weigh in addition to GPA and LSAT? Sure. So I think all law schools say they do a holistic review, right? By which we mean we're looking at everything. So even when you say besides the LSAT and the or the test score and the GPA, even the GPA we're dissecting, right? We get a lot yeah. of information. 
And we can maybe talk about that separately. But in terms of the other things, we've talked about the personal statement. Uh, I am a huge fan of resumes, really interested in what's on the resume. Uh, same with letters of recommendation and any additional material submitted. So all of those things can make or break a decision at different points. As, as we, we have a large applicant pool here. Oh, yeah. Um, so we're going to have to distinguish among people. And that's where, you know, test scores and GPAs don't do it. Like that, that's not an interesting way to look at the whole person. There's, there's a lot more there to see. Oh, there's much more. But I mean, obviously that's the whole package. You said it before. You're looking at the whole package. You're looking at the resume. You're looking at the personal statement, the addenda, the, the optional essay, if it's written, the letters of recommendation. What, what qualities are you looking for? Curiosity, potential for growth. Like no one's tapped out at 22. <laughs> One hopes, right? So, yeah. like signs of growth. Often you, you hear that talked about in letters of recommendation. You know, I had her as a freshman and now as a senior, I see the following, right? And you, you see the transformation. A good community member is really important. If someone has a letter and we should talk maybe, or maybe we can talk about letters of recommendation, but if someone has a letter that says, Susan didn't let anyone else speak, wasn't open to, and you do read those letters, right? Um, or somebody who simply has a resume that suggests no outside activity of any sort, right? Mm -hmm. No interest. So I think we're looking for, I, I don't know that well-rounded is really the word, but curious, engaged students with um, a sense of purpose, um, even if they don't know exactly where their career is going to go, but but some some energy some energy behind wanting to get there and to get there with their colleagues, not against them. If that makes sense. Yeah. It's wonderful. Thank you. Now, you've touched on letters of recommendation a couple of times. What is the role of letters of recommendation in your evaluation process? I think they can tell us a lot about how the person is in the classroom and this is school, right? So I like, academic recommendations. We uh, require two letters, except up to four and prefer academic letters. I think they can speak to growth. They can speak to initiative, sometimes resilience and determination. You know, we've seen letters coming out of the pandemic where um, students really distinguish themselves by staying engaged on Zoom and being able, despite difficult circumstances, to put in the work and um, you know complete an independent paper or an honors thesis or a seminar with energy, which uh, was clearly appreciated by professors, by these letter writers who are really struggling also to pivot to um, teaching online. They can warn us of difficulties. I mean, I always say to students, you need to request a strong letter. Um, and if the person hesitates at all, you need to thank them and leave, right? I'm sure you do the same often, advice. Yeah. Almost, almost verbatim. Right. And right. I don't love seeing those letters. They break my heart a little bit. Now we have to use our judgment about the letter writer too, because if the letter writer is a little um, less than ideal, you don't want to blame the applicant, right? But if, if the letter writer seems to have standing and, and be uh, a member of the faculty and is saying something negative, that, that is not going to go anywhere. Right. Um, that's, that's a warning. Um, but we read beautiful letters, you know, and sometimes you read letters and you're like, oh, the faculty would, you know, I can even think of a faculty member yeah. would love to teach this person. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're super engaged with the content. They're showing up. 
they're leading the classroom discussion, they're in office hours. Yes, right? And then you look at the resume and you start to see the other side of them and it starts to all come together. Right. Yeah, it is. It is a, a puzzle that you're really mm -hmm. looking at with different yeah. elements. Yeah. Does BU Law consider update letters from applicants who have something significant to tell you after they submit their application and before hearing back from you from waitlisted applicants also? Love them. And okay. in fact, again, in my old school ways, yes, often request additional grades almost regularly, particularly if someone's graduating in three years and they've applied in the fall. I'll ask for, for another semester's worth of grades. But if someone finishes a thesis, takes a new job, gets an internship, there's no reason not to update us, right? The only no. thing I would say, I would implore students to include their LSAC number and to remember this remains a professional process from start to finish. So, you know, we don't love salutations of, hey, here's some news. Um, that's not really how lawyers write. Professionalism so, is something yeah, to keep in mind. Yeah, through the whole yeah. process. But right. it also, it shows interest on the student's part, right? Because right. what we're trying to do is ascertain, does this student really want to come here? Right. Um, so if somebody's providing an update, I'm going to assume they're thinking about BU Law in a very serious way, and they want us to see um, their accomplishments or understand their situation. So yes, absolutely. We will add it. It's very easy in this paperless environment to add that right to the file. Okay, great. Good to know. Now, you've mentioned some some mistakes that you've seen along the way. Are there any other mistakes that come to mind that applicants frequently make in the application process? I think some applicants devalue themselves or feel that they don't need they shouldn't include things as part of their narrative in their resume or in their statement that aren't law related. Uh, and that could not be more untrue. Right. So if you have had to work over the summer as a cashier at the grocery store or a waitress so that you can pay your tuition, that's really valuable information in the law school admissions process, right? It's concrete evidence that you are trusted, you know how to show up for work, you know how to deal with difficult people, you have good time management skills, right? And that goes double for term time. Same with yeah. athletes, right? If I read someone is... I'm not a football fan particularly, but if I read that someone's on the football team, I'm like, they have a second job or a competitive swimmer, runner, many sports, right? They have team skills too. Right. Team skills. And they're getting their work done because I'm looking at their transcript. So I think sometimes people, they just edit themselves too much in the application process. And it's better to be authentic and, and present your full stuff self and let us sort of parse out the skill set, you know, and see the value. Right? right. I had somebody who was a personal care attendant and didn't have it on his resume. And I was like, boy, that is a tough job. Yeah. A tough job. That says a lot, a lot of responsibility. Yes. A lot of responsibility. Yes. Like you say, show up every, every, whenever the hours were. Someone's and... completely dependent on them. Right. Yeah. Right. And same for unpaid response. If people have family responsibilities, same thing. It doesn't have to be a paid responsibility. And, you know, I, I like a very robust resume, not a resume you would use for employment, but a resume um, for all the law school application process. That's great insight. Thank you. What would you have liked me to ask you? Oh, that's a tough one. A couple of things come to mind. I think uh, you didn't ask me why I love it here. 
And so okay. been, I'll answer that one because I've been here long enough to see students from beginning to partners at firms and in nonprofits. And so I think why I've stayed and why I love it so much is our students who are a remarkably talented and diverse group of people and very energizing to be around. So I think that's what I'll say. Okay, great. Now, you said you had a couple of things. So is there something else you want to uh, also raise? Um, that last that last one was great, but um... I think if people really want to go to law school, they're going to go to law school. So uh, law schools are here to support that process. I'm sure it's not just BU Law. You can call law schools. You can ask questions. You can visit law schools. You can apply in multiple cycles. There are all sorts of ways to go about applying, and sometimes I hear stress that makes me sad about about say writing the personal statement which is a very straightforward working document, right? It's meant to answer a question. It's not meant to be a work of art, but I think I would need another hour to go further. Okay. Okay, great. Well, we're, we're running out of time and I don't want to impose further. Um, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your insider perspective on BU Law, the program, the admissions process. This has been wonderful. Where can listeners learn more about BU Law? Sure. Uh, our website is a great starting point, bu.edu backslash law. Uh, we're easy to find and there's there's lots to, to read about there. Okay, great. Thank you listeners also for joining me for this wonderful interview with Dean Alyssa Leonard. We'll include links in the show notes at accepted.com slash 539 to BU Law's website, as well as to other resources that may be helpful to listeners. Quick reminder, don't miss the law school admissions quiz. Find out if you're really ready to apply and competitive at your target schools. Take the quiz at accepted.com slash law dash quiz today. This is Admissions Trade Talk produced by Accepted and I am your host, Linda Abraham. I'll talk to you again next week. 